Well, I understand not too long ago you were studying the book of Exodus. Yes, last summer? What, what an amazing narrative. I would call it the gospel of the Old Testament. And you remember the storyline. It begins with God's people crying out from under the cruel bondage of Egyptian slavery, which they've suffered for centuries. So think building pyramids, scorching suns, sun taskmasters with whips, and just absolute misery. Well, God hears Israel's cries, and he raises up a deliverer in Moses, revealing himself to his servant at the burning bush as the great I am, the the one who is being itself. And then such sovereignty and transcendence is displayed shortly thereafter as Yahweh decimates all of Egypt, inflicting on them months and months of crushing plagues, humiliating their pantheon of gods with blood and bugs and boils, bringing cataclysmic annihilation to the world's greatest superpower. And His wrath... Remember this? It culminates in the slaying of every firstborn in the land. A judgment that God's people needed him to pass over them with as well, which was mercifully provided through the blood sacrifice of a spotless lamb. And it is that dramatic Salvation through judgment that breaks the hold of Pharaoh, forcing him to let Yahweh's people go. Their their supernatural, long-awaited escape from slavery, as well as from the death angels slaying of them, picks up in chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. If you would turn with me or scroll with me there. See, I'm, I'm, I'm up with these things. Exodus chapter 13. We're beginning in verse 17. And there is nothing more profound you will hear come out of my mouth this morning. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Skip ahead to me to chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. They said, what is this we've done? We've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zaphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Listen, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Let's pray. Lord, this word is for us this morning. We, we are the Israelites. We're so fearful. The, the smallest circumstance causes us to retreat, to want to run to the comforts of sin. And you and your mercy are so wise. You corner us. You, you, you bring us to places in our relationships, in our health, with our finances, at our work. You, you, you bring us to places where there's no place for us to go but to you. And my prayer, Lord, is that there would be a supernatural submission to that. As Moses commanded your people, we hear your voice in that, Lord. To, to stand firm, to, to fear not, to to see, to wait, to be silent in anticipation of the salvation of the Lord. I pray that for every one of my friends here, every brother and sister I know and don't. Lord, would you cause them to look to you in their trials and in their circumstance and to watch you part red seas that you would receive all the glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the first point, if you are taking notes, is divine dead ends. Number one is divine dead ends, and you'll see that in verse 17. Look there again. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Now, there's a statement in that text I just read that should strike you as bewildering. It's the reference to Israel as an army. Did, Did you see where it said they were equipped for battle? I mean, how could that possibly be? We just read that God avoided the the shorter northwest route through Philistine territory because his people are scared. They're downright skittish turncoats, as we'll observe in a moment. So how are they equipped for or ready for battle? Unprepared, inept, Cowardly seems more accurately to describe them. The Hebrew word there actually for equipped for battle literally reads, the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt by fifties. The meaning being they were organized in ranks. They, they, they left in formation. Now clearly not in, in perfect per- parade-like step. I mean, how could they have? They, they were just sprung from a lifetime of imprisonment. They were, they were anemic. You could see their rib cages. They were insecure. They were homeless. The, the Israelites' existence to that point had only been one of cruel tyranny with zero experience of freedom. They, they were skeptical. You would be too. They were critical. They were incompetent. They, they were vulnerable. But from God's perspective, they were precisely the recruits he wanted. Ironically, in that, they were equipped for battle, listen, in their weakness, in their inability to defend themselves. This rabble were his warriors. Do do you see the point? This pathetic excuse for a fighting unit is just how God wants it with his people. He, he does the same thing with Gideon. Do you remember his dwindling forces who won with torches and pots? And after that, how about David? The, the shepherd boy who brings down a giant with a sling and a pebble. Listen, Yahweh likes the odds being stacked against his people, against you and against me. Do do you know that? Do you embrace that? As God's people, you are, listen to this statement, you are equipped for 
everything you face. Not because you know what to do or where to go or have strength to deliver yourself, but because of who is with you. Our inability, oh, you have to get comfortable with this. Our inability is the setting for the Lord to be the hero. To demonstrate his power and love to save. And he wants it that way so that there's no human explanation for victory, for rescue, but him. That's why Israel's bondage was so severe, so hopelessly inescapable, and why I'm referring to it as a divine dead end. God took his people down a 450 year long dead end in order to unforgettably display his supremacy over Pharaoh and the would-be deities of Egypt and to display his defense of his chosen people. But as we'll observe, he continues as if that wasn't enough. No, it wasn't. He continues to lead Israel down dead ends. The, the pillar of fire and cloud took them out of Egypt right down another dead end where once again they are trapped. They have nowhere else to turn. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. So they're, so they're headed out over the, the northern part, the source of the Red Sea. And when they get to the edge of the wilderness, the edge of Egypt's border as well, he says, turn around. Turn, turn back and encamp in front of Pihiro. So they go back and then they come down. So the Red Sea is now at their back. Camp between Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Belzephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, I know you don't know all those towns, but listen, get this point. This, This is crazy. Yahweh is telling his people to backtrack, to to go the way they just came. I mean, could you is the pillar of cloud, right, which is the theophany of God's very presence, is, does it like get to the edge of the desert and kind of go, uh, guys, this, this wasn't the way I thought. Go, go back. Go back. Everybody, retreat. Uh, uh, about face. I mean, what, is this like, is God like a guy? Does he get lost and, and is he bad with directions? Is he too stubborn to ask for help? How could this be? And the details are telling. Like I said, it's right when they get to the wilderness. They stop actually at a place called Etham. So this is the edge of civilization. They they are looking out over barren landscape and and they pause. They they, they do an about face. They they go backward. They, They retreat from that location. So, all right, back to men and driving. I, I don't know if I'm a typical dude, but I would say I can't think of things that bother me more than when I miss an exit. 
I don't know what it is, but I'll be on a highway and, and the, I'll pass the exit and I'll, it's like every cell in me is no. And then every second is, I'm getting further away from where I want to be. I'm wasting more time. I'm wasting more. Listen, I've been known. I've been so anxious about that at times. Thankfully, this is a little bit further into my past. Uh, to just do a U-turn right there. Right over the median. I, and I'm not talking about the uh, waiting for the authorized vehicles only. And I've authorized myself. I mean, it's an emergency. Bob Donahue is not where he wants to be. This Officer, this is an emergency. Um, I'm talk I, I have off-roaded, I mean, just right on the grass. And actually, that happened one time not too far from here in a place called Frederick on a road called Interstate 70. And no sooner had I done my little through the and back up, and the state trooper pulled me over. And of course, he says all the obligatory statements, can I see your driver's license, registration? And no sooner did he get the words out, Mr. Donnie, you know, I pulled you over. He just yelled at me. He said, because nobody drives on my grass. <laughs> and I thought, oh, should, but should I, I, should I tell him at my opinion at this point that I think it should be, you know, nobody who can't do it successfully. <laughs> I think the same should be true with speeding. You know, I do it safely. You know what? I think I'll just keep my mouth shut because of the, the tone of voice he's using right now. God, fathom it, God is leading Israel to do a U-turn right at Egypt's border and then to follow the Red Sea down south, essentially pinning their backs against the water so there is no possibility of escape. And they get so turned around in what looks like an unwillingness to enter the desert to the north, and now they're trapped to the east by a massive body of water. But, but remember, this is a divine dead end. God has made his people look confused and then led them into an ambush. But not for themselves. No, it is to bait Pharaoh and by the way, you know, it's not real comforting for us to be the bait, but that's the point. At least that's what the Israelites think. But it is Pharaoh who is being drawn into the trap as God is the one who will get the glory for not only vanquishing his people's foes, but rescuing his own. Look at verse 3. Pharaoh... God is predicting what Pharaoh will do. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Church, dead ends are all a part of God's plans. He, he is alluring his enemy into his traps that he might demonstrate his greatness in the vindication and salvation of his people. But how frequently we fail to view them that way. We face divine dead ends constantly in still being single 
after all these years. And being bypassed again at a promotion at work. Having a difficult marriage. There, there are divine dead ends at, at seemingly every intersection of our lives, from unexpected bills, just when you're trying to get ahead, to new illnesses that threaten to be serious, from the sting of a friend's judgment, to the incapacitating grip of depression. And our response to these obstacles and barriers is so often I, I hate dead ends. Not another dead end. Why, God, am I always turning down streets that turn out to be dead ends? I mean, that's essentially how Israel reacted, which was missing the entire reason for the trial. Dead ends are not meant to produce fear or self-pity, or temper tantrums, or striving for a solution. No, they're designed to elicit from us trust. A trust in the Lord's sovereign control over our circumstances. A, A confidence that we only encounter divine dead ends. Not random dead ends. But brothers and sisters, your tribulations are all from Him. God has led you to your precise present difficulty and He is with you in them to deliver you and prove Himself to you as strong and good and wise and loving. But we, we, we tend not to look to Him in those moments. We, we bemoan our dead ends. We, we come up with our own strategies to get out of them instead of just expressing faith towards Him. Lord, You've cornered me. Instead, we, we give in to our unbelief and our complaining. And, and actually, we'll consider that further now under point two, again, for you note-takers. Sin, this is point two, sin will take you back. So number one was divine dead ends, and number two is sin will take you back. And with that header, I'm actually intending a double meaning. That sin will take you back, meaning it will gladly resume dominion or ownership over you, but also that sin will move you backwards, away from where God wants you to be. The the pillar of cloud leads to a dead end, but with a momentous, miraculous provision of escape through the Red Sea. But sin wants to drag God's people all the way back to bondage in Egypt. And you'll see that in verse 5. Look there. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done? We've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Listen, sin, that which Egypt represents, sin is not going to give up its claim on you. Just because you were released from its chains at conversion, oh no, no, it wants you back, Christian. It misses your service. 
your allegiance, albeit forced, and it will stop at nothing to recover you what it deems its runaway property. I mean, that's really the picture verse 7 conveys. It's Pharaoh's manhunt to retrieve his slaves. And he's not using bloodhounds. He's using chariots to track down and round up his escapees. Now, you might not know this, but in ancient warfare, chariots, chariots were like having tanks. For starters, if you're on a horse, you always have the high ground swinging down upon your opponent. And it doesn't hurt that you're on a 1,500-pound animal moving at 25 miles an hour that could just steamroll human beings. If you add to that, towing a chariot, now, instead of bouncing up and down, you're flat and can volley arrows before the two lines have even engaged. And you're carrying your own walls of protection with you. So this is a massive advantage in battle. And Pharaoh had over 1,000 of them. Verse 10 records Israel's understandable reaction to the column of soldiers, the stampede of chariots bearing down on them. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? You've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said when we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You know, the temptation always when we study Israel is to distance ourselves from their constant sinful desire to return to Egypt when they're confronted with any challenge, when when being led into a dead end, whether it's having no water to drink or upcoming battles. And we hear that same refrain in their doubts here, which calls me every time to self-righteousness. How could they forget the plagues? The the display of God's power exercised in obliterating Egypt. But listen, this is how formidable of a foe sin is. Even after its most decisive defeat, after Israel is miraculously delivered from its hold, it still convinces us it has authority. That's its lie. I'm your master. Now remember, God's people had only known subjugation up to this point. The, the nation's identity was slavery, suffering. It, it was all they knew. And as such, They had gotten used to it. In fact, listen to this statement, there was a certain security in it, a a familiarity, which is true with all our patterns of besetting sin. I mean, don't we realize that going back to sin is going to hurt us? And that guilt and shame are the guaranteed after effects. We, We know 
that looking at pornography or angrily criticizing our husbands again or abandoning self-control and overeating or undereating or racking up more credit card debt. We, we know indulging in those things is only going to enslave us more and make it harder not to succumb the next time we're tempted. But we're accustomed to our iniquity. There's this dark comfort in the familiarity with our bondage. And it doesn't matter if that's cutting yourself or working yourself to death. I mean, do you think that anyone who smokes doesn't realize they're breathing cancer into their lungs? Or, or the person who is addicted to social media or looking at their phone too much? You don't think I realize I'm wasting countless hours downloading meaningless trivia into my soul? But, but in the moment... The instant, temporary pleasure, it, it covers the coming pain, the, the inevitable consequence. We, we make excuses, just like Israel did. We're going to die if we don't go back to Egypt. That is, if we don't give in to sin's current demands. And then did you notice how they revised history? Verse 12, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Uh... No! Your backs were being shredded by whips and your sons were being drowned in the Nile. How is that better? Did you forget? You were just crying out. You, you were not saying, didn't we tell you leave us here? No, you were crying out for deliverance from the domination of sin that more than anything you wanted out. And, and now you've changed your mind. Now you want to make peace with your oppressors. Now, now you want to go back. Listen, you must know this about your sin. It will not only take you back. It is in this and every moment actively at work taking you back. And, and it does this by making every conceivable, illogical rationalization that enslavement is good. Hey, maybe... Maybe Pharaoh won't mistreat us this time. You know, since God chastised him. What, what, what if it's different? Sin might satisfy, even though it hasn't before, and even though I've gone back to it for years, and only experienced nothing but rip-off and regret and deeper addiction. Sin will take you back. But the title of this sermon, which is actually, is point three, is the solution to sin taking us back, is what we are commanded to do when God leads us down a dead end and sin is galloping towards us with all its forces, all its will to drag us back down to Egypt. Here's the answer. This is what you need to do. Hold still and shut up. Those are the concluding commands of this passage. And point three, hold still and shut up and just 
watch God save. And I'm using slightly more jolting language than the text because I don't want you to forget it. But also, there's a force behind what Moses is commanding here. This is the exact wording in verse 13. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The application here is not complicated. Stand firm, what I'm calling hold still, means to stop trying to get around the dead end. Frantically coming up with contingency plans B and C and D. How am I going to get out of this? No, just stand firm. Don't move. Hold still. And then at the end it says, be silent. You have only to be silent. What I'm paraphrasing is shut up. And just... And I have to use that because I just need it a little bit stronger. I mean, do you know what kinds of things come out of my mouth when things don't go my way, when hardships are upon me? I'm just incessantly verbal and what could go wrong and who's to blame and how I feel and I complain about the unfairness and how difficult this is going to be. And I I don't know about you, I I can be a spaz, just a freak. I have no peace when there's a problem, I, I'm, I am. I'm just apt to fret and obsess and talk about it and just self-sufficiently try to fix every little issue before me. That's why these words hold still. Stand firm and be silent. That's why they help me. Because God's not asking Bob Donahue to involve himself in the solution. He's not looking for my advice or my activity. I I was never tasked to come up with a way out. No, Yahweh led me down a dead end because he has a plan to get me out. I just need to stand by. Bob, stand by, bite tongue, open eyes and watch. Watch him work. I mean, look, look at that line again. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. You don't have to defend yourself. The Lord will fight for you. You don't have to do anything. Just hold still in the trial. Believe His Word, His promises, instead of succumbing to all the emotions and lies that are attacking you in that moment. Resign yourself to Him, not to your old taskmaster. Don't don't try to negotiate with them. No, look to Yahweh, the one who just decimated your enemies and liberated you from captivity. The, oh, say these words in your soul. The Lord will fight for you. He is your mighty Savior. And He didn't rescue you so that you could be captured again. No, He is in the business of deliverance. Yahweh has explosive, unstoppable power to save His people against the most evil, threatening enemies against us. When all escapes look impossible, you can trust Him. He will part oceans to protect you, 
to bring you home to the promised land. The Lord will fight for you. Just wait. Just watch. And, and I, I wish I had time to finish the rest of the chapter because that is exactly what Yahweh does. He blasts a channel through the very sea itself. Envision it. He, 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 he does the impossible. He cuts a path through the deep for the Israelites to walk across on dry ground. The chapter records it five times. Dry ground. Really, they're standing in the middle of the sea on dry ground. Dry ground. Dry ground, dry ground. And there's a wall of water. So, so please don't think like uh, this is an ebb tide. No, there's a wall. Like Think like fish tank. There is a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. Just like a hallway, a pathway, a channel. And listen, this is where it's not like a fish tank. There's no glass holding it up. There's wind blowing it back. There there is nothing weak about this scenario. And then not only do they walk through on dry ground with a wall of water on the right, I mean, can they see the fish? If you're thirsty, are you like, I mean, this is crazy. This really happened. That same corridor is a vice that he collapses on all of the Egyptians, completely, finally drowning the army once and for all. Please, please read it later. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a visual guy, so I, I, I think of it kind of like a movie director. I, 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 just, I picture the Israelites finally on the opposite bank. I mean, can, what, what, we were just over there. Um, the Bible says that the sun's coming up. So I like to add a few, you know, you hear the seagulls kind of squawking in the back. Everybody said the, the water that was just roiling is completely calm now. And I just picture one of Pharaoh's banners just washing up. Isn't that a nice way to view it? I mean, th- that's what happened. And, and chapter 15 is the the party that ensues. But here's the point I, I don't want you to move on from too quick. Your enemy, the one who keeps pursuing you, keeps harassing you, keeps coming after you, the, the one who's brought untold agony to you, the one Yahweh promised you would never see again is buried beneath the ocean. Could you, could you imagine experiencing that? Well, brothers and sisters, you don't have to. Because God did something even greater 
for his people, which the Red Sea crossing was only a foreshadow of. At the cross, listen, the Father split open his Son, rent him through to, to make the way for us to escape the righteous judgment our sins deserve. Calvary was our Passover and Exodus. Our greatest foe, our iniquity, was nailed to that cursed, bloody doorpost, was pierced through Jesus' hands and feet, and by His substitutionary sacrifice as the Lamb, the wrath of Yahweh was atoned for, replacing damnation with forgiveness and bondage with liberation. Just like Pharaoh, the devil thought he had Jesus trapped when he filled Judas to betray him to the Pharisees. When Pilate washed his hands of the mockery of a trial, handing him over to the mobs. Satan thought he had won when Christ breathed his last and was laid in a tomb, sealed with a stone and guarded by Roman soldiers. But on Sunday morning, the trap was actually sprung on the serpent as the seed of the woman crushed his head in resurrection triumph. And not only did Jesus deliver us spiritually, ultimately, and eternally in rising from the dead, in our earthly day-to-day struggles, God still rescues. God still conquers our enemies. And not finally in our circumstances, but always in our sanctification. He uses His mighty power to make the way out for you and me so we don't have to go back to sin. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, and I conclude with this text. Oh, listen to this tie-in. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Verse 11. Now, these things happened to them, the Red Sea, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure when you, when your back is against the wall, when there are temptations and trust, when you think the only way is to go back to what I know, there is a way of escape. There is a way out of your sin. And it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
His death not only forgave you, it freed you so that we never go in reverse. Even when we're led down a dead end, even when we're the bait. So here, so here's the simple application. Here's the first thing to do in that scenario. Accept. Accept the trial as God's sovereign design. It is a divine dead end. Don't try to get out of it. Don't try to get around it. Submit. Just submit. Hold still. Submit to the Lord's sovereignty and control over that situation, as painful as it is. And next, you need to repent. Repent for cooperating with sin, for believing its deceptions, for giving into it, for allowing it to take you back. And in that, reaffirm you have been delivered from its dominion. In Christ, you are free from its hold because of his decisive victory over it in the cross and at the empty tomb for you. And then finally, stand firm, be silent, don't complain. Oh, how much iniquity would we avoid if we could just close? Be silent. Use your eyes, not your mouth. See the salvation of the Lord. Wait for him. The Lord will fight for you. Don't murmur. Don't question his love. Don't give voice to your doubts. Don't try to force your solution. Just hold still. Hold your tongue. And hold on tight. Because he will part Red Seas to rescue you to bring you to himself, to provide the way of escape. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've made the way out for us through Jesus. It affects us when we think of the waters of wrath that should have drowned us you plowing a way through them in your son's wrists and his brow and his feet and his side. It is only through your wounds, through your crucifixion and burial and death and resurrection we, that we come to you. You are the path. You are the way and Lord, how amazing it is that it's not just for salvation. You are the way for every temptation. You are the way of escape. We want to escape. Lord, we don't want to go back to Egypt. We've believed its lies. We've tried it so many times. We know it does not work. And I pray for every person here who right now is currently submitting to a bondage and authority that sin doesn't have over them. I pray they would see it for what it is. I pray for the gift of illumination. They would realize the lies and they would, they would stop running back to it and they would stand still. They would accept the suffering that you've called them to because you have a better way for them and you're far more concerned about their holiness and their purity 
and what they put their trust in. So Lord, through the cross, let your people walk towards you on dry ground to the promised land, to where you are. In Jesus' name.